Hi, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK coming to you from downtown Brooklyn. Coming up, welcome back to the heteronormative prison of July. Pride may be technically over, but we're keeping the spirit alive by highlighting the photographer who captured the Stonewall riots. So he was everywhere. We have a few contact sheets in our shows. One of them shows him at like an event and then at the birth of his second child and then at like another event later that day. So he was he was busy and he was local to the Stonewall Inn. And then an immersive musical weaves together Oscar Wilde, viral celebrity and the OC. At its core, you know, Oscar at the Crown is about who we are, who we create ourselves to be, and what happens to us when we have these visions of what we dream for ourselves to become. Fred McDera, the first staff photographer at the Village Voice, is responsible for some of the most iconic images from the Stonewall riots. Years later, when he was asked why he only took 19 photos of one of the most pivotal moments in American civil rights history, he responded, who knew? This year, to mark the 50th anniversary of Stonewall, the Museum of the City of New York is featuring those images in an exhibition called Pride, photographs of Stonewall and beyond by Fred W. McDera. To tell us more, we welcome Sarah Seidman, the museum's curator of social activism. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thanks for having me. So tell me a little bit about Fred McDera. Who was he and why was he at the Stonewall Inn that night? So McDera was Brooklyn, Brooklyn born mm-hmm. and moved to Manhattan, made the move to Manhattan, I think after after World War II and raised his family there and was definitely part of the beat scene and part of the village scene and came in on the ground floor with the village voice in the 50s and soon became the staff photographer and then the photo editor. And he was definitely just everywhere on the village beat, you know, photographing protests and concerts, uh, a lot of rock concerts. Um, So he was everywhere. We have a few contact sheets in our shows. One of them shows him at like an event and then at the birth of his second child and then at like another event later that day. So he was he was busy and he was local to the Stonewall Inn and also the Village Voice, which shared a block with Stonewall. So he wasn't there the first night when the riots uprising uh, really first broke out um, around 1 a.m. So just in the wee hours of June 28th. And then protests continued for about six days. So he came that second night and captured uh, those photographs. And I think he might have even gone back for the interior shots of the Stonewall Inn that we also have on display in the show. So the Voice provided probably the most complete coverage um, of any newspaper in this city, and he was part of that. And what are those photos from the second night of the riot? There are a few of of jubilant groups of LGBTQ New Yorkers. Um, Stonewall was pretty diverse not fancy, but a pretty diverse place, and a lot of youth, a lot of queer youth of color and trans folks, as well as gay and lesbian and and bisexual folks, and they're kind of gathered in, I think, the iconic shot that he took uh, somewhat jubilantly on the steps outside. Um, So he has variations of that photograph. You wouldn't know that it was a riot based on that photograph. It does look just like a group of friends who are out for a fun night. Exactly. Yeah. I think the second night was more celebratory Mm -hmm. and the first night and maybe the third night had more, first night for sure had more like looting and people, 
either throwing the first punch or the first brick. Right. There's definitely still some myth around it. I think a few different people claim to have, to have thrown the first punch. Um, but I think I think it's true. The second night was a little calmer and and uh, jubilant. But McDerrit does capture some of the some of the violence as well. There's a photo of a jukebox that has been destroyed. From yes. inside. Yes, right. So some of the damage to the Stonewall Inn itself and the boarded up windows that I think the bar did. And then they said, I think they said we're open still. <laughs> um, and then the Managing Society, which, you know, of course, had been organizing around gay rights primarily, you know, for for years before then, they, I think, wrote something on the outside of the window. And they, you know, they were ready to jump in and organize, which is pretty much what happened. And and a big part of the reason Stonewall is as big of a catalyst, there had been other, you know, confrontations with police at LGBTQ bars. But I think the way groups jumped in to organize immediately after really got the modern LGBTQ rights movement going. And maybe that speaks to McDera saying, I didn't know it was a big deal at the time, that it was just another bust by cops on a bar where people of color and trans women frequented. But it was the immediate (laughs) aftermath when people decided to really make it uh, the beginning of a larger a larger revolution. Is that right? Is that, yeah. a, is that the right way to think about Stonewall? I think that's, yeah, I think that's definitely a helpful way to think about it. And and also with McDare's involvement, that he just kind of happened to be, you know, the voice sent him over. He was nearby. But I think over time, you also see his kind of growing closer to the topic, you know, as someone who I think was sympathetic po- politically, it was an ally, but wasn't necessarily part wasn't part of the LGBTQ community, um, that he grew closer, I think, to the movement over time, and his photographs reflect that. But he also just was devoted to photographing liberation struggles in general. So his work features a lot of black liberation, young lords, um, women's liberation. So I think definitely as part of that kind of zeitgeist of late 60s activism, this, you know, fits into that larger context. You mentioned the Manishing Society, and McDera is also responsible for the iconic image of the sip-in at Julius, uh, where the bartender is refusing to serve three members of the Manishing Society because they were gay. Exactly. Um, I'm curious about what you mentioned that you had this affinity with sort of, you know, under underrepresented or marginalized communities. Was there anything in particular that drew him to the LGBT community? He himself was not gay, correct? Correct. Um, I think he grew up very working class or, or impoverished. And from what I've read or from what his family members have said, you know, that he kind of saw himself as a little bit marginalized in, in certain ways. And I think maybe that drew him to uh, some of the uh, some of the political movements at the time, right? He'd definitely been a part of the beats and that co- countercultural um, angle from from that perspective. But but uh, yeah, I think with the LGBTQ community, the photographs on display we have about forty in the Pride show um, from Stonewall through 1994. We stopped at the 25th anniversary, pretty much, and it it shows I think the way he became kind of more and more. Yeah, like involved in some ways in documenting the struggle over over time. But you're right; it begins with with the sip in. He has a few other um, shots that are on display in the companion show to Pride, uh, Voice of the Village. So we have two shows. One's a larger retrospective of his work and sip in, and a few other photographs um, from before Stonewall. And then we pick up with Stonewall and bring it up to the 25th anniversary. There's also a beautiful image of Marsha P. Johnson. Was that taken? 
during the Stonewall riots or sometime after? That was after. I believe that was, I think it was 71, that photograph. Um, So basically after Stonewall, there was a, a protest about a month later. And and then from from then we kind of document the pride marches, not every year but almost every year, um, and especially in the 70s. And he he really was there pretty much every year. So, um, Marsha P. Johnson. We actually have a few photographs of her in the show. There's some great ones of her dancing at the Gay Activist Alliance. Um, uh, firehouse, which became a kind of headquarters of the movement, as well as that beautiful portrait of her at the, I believe, 1971 Pride March. I think the photographs, you know, capture some of the celebratory nature of being outside in the streets together, celebrating identity and and love, as well as the kind of more serious political project of LGBTQ rights and equality. And of course, those things are are related. But um, yeah, I think he does capture some of the intimate joy that people are feeling. And you are a curator of activism at the Museum of the City of New York. What does that role entail? And talk to me about your recent your recent work, including trans people and sort of the story of struggles of activism in New York. I'd love to. Um, So I curate the ongoing exhibition, Activist New York, at the museum. And it's 14 different moments in time from the 1600s through the movement for black lives. Um, And pretty much we have some stuff right from today in there as well. And they change over time. We've had a section on the gay liberation movement up since the show started, um, which is actually 2012. It's been up for quite some time. And it's so exciting to rotate new content in every year. And we decided it was the perfect moment to uh, put in a new section on trans activism that really centered uh, voices and people like Marsh P. Johnson, Sylvia Rivera, who are such pioneers in trans activism in New York and really nationally from the city. And so we have photographs and ephemera and kind of brings things right up to the present in that section as well. So we wanted to commemorate the 50th anniversary of Stonewall with those two kind of pieces, as well as programming and some of our uptown bounce block parties this summer. So every like everywhere across the city, we're, you know, very busy uh, marking the anniversary. And, you know, we uh, we can we hope to continue to commemorate and talk about these important histories beyond this month, of course, and, and throughout the year. And indeed, the show is up until the end of the year. Exactly. Yes. Pride is up through 2019. Stonewall is now an event that most people know about. And if they didn't know about it before this year, hopefully they do now. But what do you hope that people take away from your show in particular? What new things do you hope that they might have learned? A a good reminder of how hard fought uh, the rights and... Um, and resources for the LGBTQ communities in New York are. Um, and, and seeing those early Pride March photographs that I think are a little different than some later ones, you know, that are, that are really protest photographs. Um, and, and, and right, seeing the sip-in photograph where patrons could be completely legally denied access to services in public accommodations or denied housing or employment completely legally. The city didn't pass a local ordinance outlawing discrimination based on sexual orientation until 1986. There was an executive order in place before then, but legislatively, and it didn't cover trans folks until 2001. So I think just 
may not be new, but a constant reminder that how hard fought these these political rights are, but also just how diverse the participants at Stonewall were. Um, and be it people of color, trans folks, working class, New Yorkers, and that we hope to capture that diversity in the show. Yeah, it's harder to erase trans bodies and people of color when they were photographed there. So that thank you, true. Fred McDara. <laughs> um, the show is called Pride, Photographs of Stonewall and Beyond, and it's up until the end of the year at the Museum of the City of New York. Thank you so much for joining us, Sarah. Thanks again. We are all in the gutter, but some of us are looking at the stars. That line from Lady Windermere's fan could well have served as the inspiration for Oscar at the Crown, an immersive post-apocalyptic musical extravaganza currently running in Bushwick. The characters in the show are outcasts and exiles, keeping their spirits buoyed by performing a musical about the life and times of Oscar Wilde. How meta. Joining us today is the writer of the show and its lead actor, Mark Moriello. Thanks so much for coming on Moment 2BK. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So the plot of the show is complex. It uh, weaves together reality TV, um, Oscar Wilde, and the apocalypse. Can you tell me a little bit about what the show's about? Sure. So at its core, you know, Oscar at the Crown is about who we are who we create ourselves to be, and what happens to us when we have these visions of what we dream for ourselves to become. What that kind of equates to is we're at some point in the distant future. You know, the government in the United States has become more authoritarian, more limiting, and we have found ourselves in with this community of exiles, whether they are exiled for being queer, for being women's rights activists, for any number of things that we may fearfully imagine are not too far in the distance at some points. And they have hunkered down and decided, you know what, instead of being beat down any longer, we are going to explode into a fantasia of fabulousness and frivolity and joy and music and dance and love. And they do that through putting on this show about Oscar Wilde. And then there's also this side plot where they have this conspiracy theory about the Real Housewives and the OC and Twitter and the end of the world. Um, Because don't we all? It's quite a side (laughs) plot. You have this very rousing, earwormy number called Julie, How Did You Know? Yeah. That is about Misha Barton's mom in the OC making a prediction that ultimately led to the apocalypse. Correct. More or less, yeah. Okay. What what was her prediction? (laughs) So... The conspiracy theory, as we call it, um, kind of basically lays out, if you look at the OC, were you a, an OC fa- fan, watcher? I was not. I was like um, like too good for the OC. I was oh, like okay. so cool. Okay. Uh, so my peers were watching the OC, and I was like, the OC is for babies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> as a baby, right? I love it. Uh, no, I'm kidding. So essentially, we you had on the OC this character who was Misha Barton's mom, who was this overly dramatic soap opera mother divorced affair she slept with her daughter's boyfriend this right. kind of you know as you might imagine and her brilliant. name was julie cooper her name was julie cooper okay. and she was just you know just this 
brilliant character. Mm -hmm. And then what started to happen culturally was, of course, the first Real Housewives franchise or series um, emerged that launched the franchise, which was the Real Housewives of Orange County. So it was this kind of reality takeoff of shows like The O.C. Of course, there was the Desperate Housewives influence as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And that premiered on March 21st, 2006. Real fact. Um, And so on March 21st, 2006, we say that we've gone from this character, this fictional character like Julie Cooper to these real people on the Real Housewives of OC. We've gone from a fictional scripted person to a real person with a real identity who is now scripting themselves and being scripted and edited and crafted into this uh, television character. Right. March 21st, 2006 is also the day that Twitter was founded. Whoa! I know. I got very <laughs> lucky. It happened. I was one day I was like, I wonder what Twitter's birth chart is. And I saw that it was March 21st, 2006, and I was like, Pisces? Are they a Pisces? I think, yeah. yeah, Twitter's a Pisces, okay. (laughs) I was doing all of them once in a frenzy. We say, you know, because of Twitter, because of social media, every single one of us now also has this ability to craft this other version of ourselves, right? To craft this, some would say false, but some would say exaggerated um, icon of who we are and how we want to present ourselves to the world. And we kind of worship at the altar Mm -hmm. of that icon. And so this song or sequence production number, Julie, kind of equates this leap from fictional television character to the Real Housewives to this advent of all of us democratizing that ability and that power to create this other version of ourselves on our phones, on the internet, as kind of being this harbinger for the downward spiral. And the show really leans into that. It encourages the audience members to use their phones to take photos and video and social media it. Totally. And there are also screens that are playing kind of amazing montages of all of the viral celebrities who've emerged since the late aughts. You've got uh, Lee Britney alone. You have the Kardashians, of course. And it it starts out being sort of like lighthearted and funny. And then by the end, you have like montages with like JonBenet Ramsey and like all of these sort of... um, darker darker examples of what happens when viral celebrity gets out of control. And it, that video is brilliantly done by Leanne Arnold. She's an incredible uh, designer and, and artist. And, you know, along with that lines, people a lot of like, people often will ask me, so your show's about Oscar Wilde, but then there's this whole 10-minute number about Twitter and the OC. And I, I understand why that may seem not initially cohesive, but really for me it's about, you know, Oscar Wilde was, in terms of creating another version of yourself, worshiping at the altar of this false persona or this crafted artistic persona, he was a genius at that. He he would have been incredible on Twitter and on Mm -hmm. social media. He knew in a way that for many was before his time how to take your personhood and your identity and create something else from it. And ultimately for him, the statue got built built up so big and it collapsed down in on him. And we see that... It's Marilyn Monroe, it's Judy Garland, it's Amy Winehouse, it's it's so many celebrities. And so through that kind of cavalcade of references and images, you know, we, we try to place Oscar Wilde, this historical figure from the 1890s, in and amongst the stars that we maybe now know and are more familiar with. Mm-hmm. He had more in common with Lindsay Lohan than we might initially guess. Right. <laughs> he would have been great on Twitter because he's so pithy, too. Like, he would have done amazing things with exactly. the 140 characters. Right. Um, 
the show has been called a K-pop, J-pop, Scissor Sisters on Speed electronic dance party. Um, I liken it to being trapped inside Dance Dance Revolution. So talk to me about some of the references that you pulled from and what the experience of being at the show is like. Absolutely. So the music is composed and the show is choreographed um, by my artistic partner, Andrew Barrett-Cox, who is in, writes these like incredible, simple yet complex pop Earworms, as you as you said, they're brilliant, and his choreography is bringing, whacking and voguing in these underground queer dance styles to the theater stage in a way that no one has ever done before. So he's incredible, and the show pulls in those references. Right, you want to feel like you are on the dance floor at a club, at a party, surrounded by gorgeous people, having fun and reveling in this excitement and fantasia of this kind of crafted, created, beautiful fantasy world. Of course, we all know that those things don't always last forever. So without giving too much away over on the course of this night at Oscar at the Crown, that philosophy gets challenged a little bit. And we have to kind of reckon with, we can have our party, we can have our frivolity, we can have our beauty. And it's so important now, like nowadays, incredibly so that we hold on to that. It's a beautiful, queer, incredible thing. But we have to have that undercurrent as well. We have to have that knowledge of the reality. We have to have that responsibility, that multiplicity of voices. So as we mentioned, this is not a traditional, you know, get your seat, sit down, passively watch through the fourth wall type theater experience. People are encouraged to buy drinks at the bar, move freely around the space. And this, I imagine, can lead to some rowdiness, maybe if you're doing it right. Like at the end of the show that I saw, there was one gentleman who was very passionate about Uh the final monologue. And he was yelling, you tell him, you tell him. Um, it, you know, immersive theater is like so in vogue right mm-hmm. now, but it does come with risks. Um, have there been any disasters or any audience interactions gone wrong? There have not. You know, I think what I love about immersive theater and club and nightly performance, which of course is the challenge of it, is it means that like you are expending energy out of every pore on your body. Because while I'm speaking to you, there's someone behind me. So my back is acting as much for them too, mm-hmm. right? So it's it's this crazy challenge um, and beautiful experience to like really be with the audience, to perform for the people. And they come right along on a ride for us. And I think the brilliant thing about what Shira has done directing the show is really made sure that if you want to be in there on the dance floor, in the middle, dancing, twirling, screaming, shouting back at us, there's a place for you. Mm-hmm. If you are like, I'm going to get my tequila soda and I'm going to stand off to the side and watch this action unfold as I kind of hang towards the outskirts. That's awesome. That's perfect. You know, we want this show and this experience to be inclusive for everyone uh, and accessible for everyone. So while it is this club experience, like being at a club, you can choose your own adventure a little bit. Um, And we've actually, you know, we've had some thrilling experiences with audience members, some who have come back time and time again. I love to hear back from them you know they're there with us we're not gonna be on a proscenium and pretend there's a fourth wall and the audience isn't there because i'm right next to you i just may have spit on you or sweat all over you as i ran by so if you have something to say to to me within reason i want to listen i want to hear from you um and so it's really thrilling that i think every night we do build this community of people who are on the dance floor together the audience members our performers our whole staff like we're in it we're doing this thing together we're gonna sweat and dance together and I think that's 
why the audiences respond in, in, in the way that they do. I mean, it sounds like Andrew is really trying to um, include people in theater who may not normally have seen themselves. And I see yeah. that I see that with the dancers a lot. You know, you mentioned styles of dance that aren't, you know, what you learn in like jazz and tap classes. And you have a lot of people who I think probably wouldn't go out and audition for like a normal Broadway production. And that's important to us and intentional. You know, we want to, as a company, you know, the Neon Coven and Oscar at the Crown, it's incredibly important to us to put people on stage with giant hearts and massive talent. That's it, you know? And there are so many people, whether that is because of your identity or what you look like, what your body is like, what you, where your abilities may fall, that do, you know, in the commercial theater industry get placed out of things. I couldn't tell you how many times in auditions that they're like, can you lower your speaking voice? And I'm like, I can't, but I can like full belt and E flat. Right. And I'm looking like you can't have both. Right. And, and you know, so I think it, it's, it's important to us to, like, make space and build space for these incredible talents who want to have an outlet and deserve an outlet. And it's, it's been really exciting as we um, have built this show and really built it on the performers that we've been blessed to bring together to watch every single one of those people, like turn it out and shine and surprise us and grab us and engage us. It's like an incredible group of people and it's awesome. I love every single one of them so dearly and I'm so grateful to like get to do it with them every night. You can really tell in the audience. Um, And if people want to go see the show, how can they do that? How long are you running and where do they buy tickets? So we are currently on sale through the end of the summer um, with hopes to extend. We're open-ended. So we're going to ride this train as long as we can. We're going to keep dancing until the world ends, as Britney Spears might say. Mm Mm-hmm. And so you can get tickets at www.oscaratthecrown.com. Follow us on Instagram at Oscar at the Crown. Um, you can also follow our company, The Neon Coven, at, at The Neon Coven. Uh, Instagram, Facebook, all that stuff. Great. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. This has been such a pleasure. And that is the show for today. If you liked what you heard, the best way to show it is to remember that Stonewall was a riot. You could also review Woman TVK on iTunes, and please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Woman TVK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 